Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The $1.3 million Kosciuszko is the world's richest race for country-trained horses and the field is determined by those who draw winning tickets in the Kosciuszko sweepstakes. $5 tickets are now available through the TAB app or your local TAB outlet. 14 winning ticket holders will be drawn on September the 9th. Holders of those winning tickets will have the opportunity to select the horse they'd like to run in their entry and if successful will then negotiate the terms of a prize money split with the owners of that horse. A $5 ticket could make it possible for you or your syndicate of friends to share in the ownership of a runner in a race which in just three runnings has achieved a high profile. Grafton-trained Bell Flyer gave his slot holders a big thrill when he won the first Kosciuszko in 2018. In 2019 it was Handle the Truth and last year It's Me from Scone. It's an exciting opportunity for bush horses to take centre stage on one of the biggest race days in the world. It gives punters and racing fans the opportunity to share in the ownership of a horse running in a $1.3 million race. Remember, the 14 winning slot holders will be drawn on September the 9th. When Paul Ambrosoli decided to hang up the binoculars in 2014, the race broadcasting ranks lost one of its most polished performers. Family, friends and colleagues were all caught on the hop. The veteran was still calling at the absolute top of his game. The trademark style was unchanged. The passion was unwavering. But he was approaching 70 years of age. He'd been working at a hectic pace for well over four decades and travelling huge mileage to meet commitments. It was a night of high emotion. On July 2nd, 2014, when the maestro walked into the Wentworth Park broadcasting box for the last time, carrying his trusty binoculars and that well-worn brown suitcase that had become part of the Ambrosoli persona. During the course of the night's racing, there'd been presentations, many interviews and a million handshakes. By the time the dogs were boxed for the final event, he was entitled to choke on the lump in his throat. Not this seasoned old pro. He called that race as he did all of the others. Slick, professional, accurate and entertaining as Queen Esther led from box one and was always in control, just like the man calling the race. Seven years on, Paul is still living in his beloved Hawkesbury Valley on a property used as a horse training base by his granddaughter, Claire Lever. Sadly, he's currently coming to terms with the loss of his wife, Pat, who died on Good Friday after a long illness. This podcast would be nowhere near complete without the participation of a brilliant race caller and one of the greatest friends Greyhound Racing has ever had. PA, that should square up any debt that I've incurred over a long period of years. I, w- I was just going to say something like that. <laughs> that's, a, that's an amazing intro. Well, uh, you, you deserve it. 
nearly had tears coming down my eyes. Fair dinkum. That was a, no, thank you very much. That's an amazing intro. Uh, I don't think I don't think that's been better than anywhere down the track. That's uh, that's something something else. And thank you very much for the kind words. But a lot of what you said, as far as work was concerned, is very very true. I mean. Uh, I never wanted to change my style. I only wanted to improve it. And yes, travelled many thousands of miles doing it. And yes, um, had a wife who travelled many thousands of miles with me while I was doing it. Mm. And yes, we were totally ensconced in greyhound racing. But mate, look, it's 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 like everything. And let, let me point this out to your to your listeners, right? Mm. Um, I would say that all of the old. And I, I've put that in inverted commas because there's a couple of uh, gentlemen still calling who who will go with this. I, mm. All the older race broadcasters all wanted to be a race broadcaster at a very, very early age. And that's what happened to me. Mm. I wanted to be a race broadcaster when I was seven years of age. Uh, and everybody says, oh, yeah, you know, well, how would you know that? You know, very simply because we used to live at Lindley Point. Yeah. a suburb of Sydney overlooking the Lane Cove River. Mm. And my father would come home at 7 o'clock on a Friday night and he'd have the mirror or the sun under his hand and I would immediately detach that from him, open it up as a form guide and read the form. Now, that mm. was that was 7 o'clock on a Friday night and, yes, I was only seven. We lived there. We moved there when I was about five and a half and left there when I was about 12 or 13 or something like that. And mm. that's what I used to do. And I was totally wrapped up in the, uh, in the form guide and uh, that's what led me into wanting to be a race broadcaster. Mm. And uh, that's that, that's when I wanted to be one. And I, I just had to be one from that time onwards. It was mm. just a necessity of life. Yeah, absolutely. You talk about the wonderful affinity that you and Pat both held for greyhound racing uh, right throughout your life together. Females were allowed to train the dogs in Pat's youth, but for mm. some reason they were not allowed to take them to the boxes. Now, one night she was forced to take a dog to the boxes at a country meeting. It's true. What what occurred, uh, Pat actually did not agree with the allowance of uh, letting women take the dogs to the boxes, mm. simply because she knew how strong and how willing uh, greyhounds could be. And uh, she also put her hand up and said, the male is always stronger than the female. And therefore, the males should be handling the dogs on the way to the boxes because they're all geared up to go bang and, and race. But what occurred was that the, the, there had been rules trying to get changed. They finally got changed one Friday afternoon. And on that Friday night, we were racing at Tamora. And I had forgotten, completely forgotten that I had a commitment mm. on Friday night and early Saturday morning and I couldn't go. And so I got a very close friend to drive Pat and the dogs to Tamora, which he did, uh, and Pat had to handle two of the dogs. And the funny thing about this is that in those days, when you kenneled your greyhounds, there was a lower level and an upper level. Mm. And they kenneled the dog on the upper level, and this dog had complete faith in you. Mm. If I swim him in the Hawkesbury River, he would jump off a rock 20 feet up to land in the water to go swimming with me. Mm. He, he was just so faithful to you, you know. So, of course, he's also about 74 pounds. <laughs> and Pat's gone to, had to let him out. And our very good friend was watching, you know. He said, no, Pat said, I've got to do it. So she opened up the door and this dog just went straight out and jumped in her arms. And my friend Alan said, 
He said, I just don't know how she stood up. She didn't go backwards. The fence was there. Mm. <laughs> but she handled the dog anyway. The dog the dog went around, got beaten by a nose, unfortunately. Uh, but that was the first time that any woman had handled a greyhound. And so I often referred to her as the first lady in greyhound racing, which yeah. she was because she did handle uh, the handle the first dog along the way. And, of course, then again, she was also the clerk of the course at Harold Park. Yes, I remember. Uh, mm. which, which so many of the trainers used to uh, remind me of. He said, geez, it was good going to the boxes with your wife. Nothing nothing like going at Wentworth Park, but he said, with her little short white pleated skirt and a red jacket <laughs> and a red hat and the long boots, he said it was pretty groovy. <laughs> oh, she painted a pretty picture, Paul. Absolutely. She did. She painted, painted more than a pretty picture, my friend. Uh, she was fantastic. And it wasn't it wasn't uh, it, it was a job that was a fair income job. It wasn't just a show pony's job, but you know, the the reason the, the boss Norm Smith uh, uh, wanted her prowess was because she had been handling greyhounds and she knew if there was anything that went wrong, she mm. would be uh, uh, equipped to handle it. Mm. Your granddaughter Claire, who was now Mrs. Claire Lever, wife of the very talented jockey Chad has made a pretty good start as a horse trainer, which is of no surprise to you. No, no. As a matter of fact, it's funny you should mention this. I, it was only uh, the other day I came across – it's basically – Pat and I both had favourite photos of Claire. Pat had a favourite photo of her. She was riding a horse into 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 the stalls and, mm. and uh, turned around and looked back and the, 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 the photographer captured her beautifully. But my favourite was always when she had a pony, a, 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 a stud pony, mm. and uh, she was only, what, five and a half. She might have been six, so she was just five and a half, and she was in, in the lead class mm. at uh, Blacktown Show. And she was there and she was eyeing off the opposition. So you have got a bleed here. Classic photo. I loved it. Yeah. Because <laughs> she she got she really does have like a lot of com- we we taught all our kids to have a bit of competitive nature, you yeah. know. And she she had her showing. Yeah. And uh, and she she was she got a reserve champion that day with the with the little uh, Australian stud party, which was which mm. which was great. But but you know like you talk about kids and horses and why would she not grow up being a horse trainer? Mm. That little pony was a brown and white pony, right? Mm. So it's, it's, they look like a Shetland, but they're not a Shetland. Anyway, she said to her mother, she said to her mother, I want a, I want a pony for Christmas. And this is, this is about 10 days out from Christmas. So Bernadette said to me, Claire's just put it on me. She wants a pony for Christmas, a brown and white pony. Mm-hmm. She said, that's good. I wonder where I'm going to get one. <laughs> I said, good luck. Mm. So we couldn't find one anywhere. Anyway, this day, Bernard said, there's a brown and white pony advertised <laughs> at Terry Hills. <laughs> it's I said, idea. you kid me. She said, no. I said, we're away. So I put mm. the float on. Off we went. So as we're approaching this road, I could see this lady running a brown and white pony through a paddock. Mm. And I said to Bernadette, if that's the pony, mm. just put it on the float and we're away. It is absolutely mm. drop-dead gorgeous. Mm. And it was the pony. Mm. And it, so we put it, in, put it in the float. Away we went. And when we got home, we have to put it somewhere. So you put it somewhere till Christmas morning. So then we, we put it on the – oh, no, that's right. And she, that's right. Claire turned around and said, I know. When Pat was making the – Bernadette was making breaks about it. How can we get one? She said, oh, I know. We'll ask Santa Claus for it. Mm. He's got to get you one. And Bernard <laughs> said, my Godfather, now I'm really stuck, you know. So we've got out of it. We've climbed out of it. 
So we've put the pony on the front veranda. <coughs> well, of course, in the Christmas morning, Claire got up and ran everywhere around the joint, ran mm. everywhere bar the front veranda. Mm. <laughs> anyway, she finally she finally found it, and from that day on, the affinity with horses was signed, sealed, and delivered. And so she uh, so she started. She didn't mm. want to go to school. She left school. Then she started to ride track work at. Uh, um, up at uh, who's your Bobber's place at uh, Grosswold at um, can't think. Anyway, the, there's in- Ingham's place. So mm. she started to, uh, to ride track work there, and then she came down to Hawkesbury and was riding track work here, and then turned around and said to her father, "You've got three horses. Why don't you get five? Then you can apprentice me." So that's basically what happened, and so it mm. went on from there and there. Uh, gave me the most exciting day I've ever had at the races. Um, John, uh, the most exciting day I have ever had at the races when people ask you is very mm. simple. The day she rode her first Metropolitan winner mm. because I said to her, you can only do this once. You can't do it twice. This is your first ride in town. Yep. You can only ride the fir- You can only ride that winner once. And, you know, she, she managed to ride – uh, have her first ride in the city at Rose Hill and rode, rode the winner. Was that a, so, a horse called Footy Fan? That's exactly right. And, Tra- uh, yeah, trained by Wade Slinkard, who retired only recently. That's right. And it was owned by Tom Sewell, and Tom was well known for his affinity with women and horses. Mm. He uh, he always maintained for many, many years that women were, uh, were a great necessity in racing. Now, and, mate, uh, we're <laughs> going to check your achievements in the field of education. Oh, dude, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) You went to the historic Sydney Grammar, a school which has produced prime ministers, road scholars, high court judges and the world's best greyhound commentator. (laughs) Did did you apply yourself to studies? Mate, I'll put it to you this way. I can always remember my very first day at Sydney Grammar because we went into a maths class, right? (laughs) I didn't know it as maths. I knew it as arithmetic. We went mm. into the maths class. I will never forget the teacher. He got up and he said, right, he said, welcome to Sydney Grammar. Our first, uh, our first class today will be doing algebra. So get your algebra books out. Mm. And I thought, I don't even know what algebra is. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> never heard of it. And he asked me to get out. And I was in the, hey, I was in the A grade class. That was the that was the, the the unbelievable thing. I was in the A grade class. He said algebra. I never heard, never heard the word. Yeah. Mate, I would have been uh, a most disappointing, um, a most disappointing scholar as far mm. as my father and mother were concerned. Mm. <laughs> I really was. I, you're in I the A no, grade. You, you must have been a ring in. Yeah, well, I did said was. I quickly got out of A grade, I, and then I think I went B, C, D, E. <laughs> yeah. You know, I went down the slide, You know. Race calling isn't the only thing that you and Ian Craig have in common. Your dad's... No, we, ran, we, we, we went, ran a great parallel, John, a yeah. great parallel. Yeah. Uh, if I could, I'll, I'll tell the story because yeah, I don't know whether you got it right or wrong or whatever, but our, both their fathers were in the rag trade. Yeah. My father was a manufacturing tailor and uh, Ian's father was in, in, involved with, I think it was Craig and son of Parramatta. And then we both left our fathers and went travelling. I was selling peace goods and I, I can't remember what Ian was travelling, selling on the road, but it was it was cloth. And he was selling on the road and so was I. We never knew knew, knew this at all or anything like this. We never mm. met each other or whatever. And then he was working for 2KA 
Uh, and then I, then I, he, he, they wanted somebody to broadcast because he, he got a desk listed was absent, so he was doing, uh, he was doing tappies, so he was doing uh, Des's mm. uh, job. And anyways, they asked for somebody to do the Richmond Dogs, and that's where I started the Richmond Dogs. So Ian started mm. the Richmond Dogs. I started the Richmond Dogs. We both broadcast for 2KA. Yeah. Then we both ended up broadcasting for 2KY, and we both went to Sydney Grammar. Yeah, incredible. I'm glad you mentioned 2KA, a little radio station first licensed in 1935 to serve the Blue Mountains only. Later, a translator station was established at Emu Plains, which enabled the signal to get into the metropolitan area. In fact, later, 2KA became a thorn in the side of some of the Sydney radio stations. 2KA, Paul, in that era, had a much bigger audience than people imagined. Well, let me tell you how big it was. Uh, I was a North Sydney Rugby League follower, right? Mm. And we would go to the Sydney Cricket Ground occasionally to watch them play when they managed to get there. And I could sit in either of the front two seats in the ladies' stand mm. and I could listen to the dogs being broadcast over 2KA at Lithgow. Good heavens. Yeah? Yeah. Shows you how much of a desperate I was. <laughs> when the New South <coughs> Wales TAB was inaugurated in 1964, 2KA was the only station to cover all Greyhound TAB meetings. But you felt <coughs> they should look at doing some rugby league commentary. And one day at the Lithgow Dogs, you buttonholed the station manager and talked him into covering a second division final between Penrith and Wentworthville. You convinced him. You talked him yep. into it. And everybody thought Wentworthville were stone living certainties over the line. It would have been one dollar and one if you were betting on today's method. Mm. And of course, Penrith managed to beat them. I forget what it was five, three, or eight, five. It was a very low scoring game. Mm. But Penrith won that match, and that entitled them to go into the first division. And when that occurred, I said to the station manager, you know, you, you're going into the Penrith area. You know, this is this is something you should look at as far as doing it. I said, but in those days, John, you couldn't get a licence to broadcast the games because the licences were handed out to the Sydney radio stations and that was as far as it was going. They, nobody else could get a licence to do anything. Mm. 2GB, the ABC, 2SM with Frank and the like, uh, 2KY, they had the licences, they did it. But I said, I, I've, I've got an in. I said, an in, I said, because I'm sort of involved a little bit with North Sydney Leagues. And I said, that might just help us um, get the, the, the go-ahead. Mm. So in 1967, they got the go-ahead to, uh, to do the home games. I arranged for that, but I started broadcasting for them. Actually, in 1968, yeah. we covered the home games, and then I covered those through till I think 1970 or 1971. Mm. And in that time, 2KA, Transcontinental Broadcasters, was sold to radio station 2SM, I think it was. Mm. And 2SM suddenly found that they had a bloke broadcasting the rugby league who was working for 2KA. 
And uh, they said, that's no good. So I got the chop. (laughs) 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 They they immediately sent me a letter and said, you're not required. (laughs) So that's when I stopped broadcasting the football. And, uh, you know, then obviously when I went to 2KY, they they had uh, a need on occasions for me to broadcast the rugby league for them uh, for a few times. So that was, you know, it was very good. So it was a good carry on. That was the, that was the intro as far as the football was concerned. 2KY started its full-time Greyhound service in 1971. Now, at the time, you were covering the out-of-town meetings, but there was Mm. a move to make you the station's number one Greyhound caller. Now, you tell the story about a board meeting one day which would shape your future, and you were at the board meeting. You know, I was at the board meeting, um, I, you know, like I, I was doing the country meetings and I was perfectly happy. I mean, the, the whole point here was that it wasn't a very good idea for 2KA to be covering the greyhounds at night because, you know, who could get 2KA at Roseville or Dremoyne or something like that? You, you couldn't mm. get 2KA. Yeah. So this was not uh, inducive of uh, a lot of over t- turnover. So they had to get a Sydney station to do it. So they got 2KY to cover it in 71. Now, in those days, Ray Conroy was doing the dogs. Mm. And then Ray would do one week, then Ian would do the other week Mm. uh, because they also did the trots on Friday night. So Ray would always do the trots, but on Saturday night he might do the dogs or Ian might do the dogs. Mm. And at the board meeting, Doug Melton was very pro Paul Ambrosoli doing the dogs. He's doing those and things out in the country. I said, no, I'm perfectly happy where I am. Yeah. <laughs> I don't worry about doing the city. I'm perfectly happy where I am. Nobody's worrying me or doing anything like that. I, I like that. That's a good way. So anyway, the boss said, hey. He said, this is where it's at. He said, uh, you are now doing the two Sydney Greyhounds also. I said, right out. So I was start of the Sydney Greyhounds in whatever it was, 1971. Yeah, and a new and golden era began. You know, you've always said that every race was different. Every race was an adventure. Every race turned up a new story. And you were always excited by that. Absolutely. But it was just exactly what I said. It was totally a different race. People used to – I was in a quandary. People would say to me, God, you drive to Tapte, you drive to Bulli. I said, yes, I do about 100,000 kilometres a year travelling around. That's okay. I did it for about 30 years and then suddenly realised how many miles I'd covered. But the point being that uh, I would I would say to them, you've got to realise yeah, I'm sitting in the broadcasting box of Dapto Dogs. Mm. Uh, and and somebody, one, one of the Sydney journos, um, who's still doing it now, I can't, it does the football now, Um and he said, I can't get over this. He said, you come here every week. He said, I said, mate, you go to the office every day. I said, that would drive me insane. Mm. I said, the office, you walk in, everything's exactly as it, you left it the night before. Mm. I said, you're doing exactly the same thing and talking to exactly the same people 90% of the time. Mm. I said, I go to the Greyhounds. I said, every Greyhound race mm. is a different race. There's a totally different perspective to it. Mm. Every race. Who has that favour done to them. Who? Nobody. I said, it's just fantastic. <laughs> I'm in a different world. In Every 20 minutes, I'm in a totally different world. Yeah, good on you. Uh, and I love it. Mm. You know? And I really do. I love loved every moment of it. Uh, Paul, I never got bored. No, and you never sounded bored either. Now, Paul, I just want to confirm or refute a few of the legends that exist about you. Firstly, I didn't know there was any. 
Yeah, the story about your record number of meetings in one week. I can't get my head around this. Ian Craig was on holidays, so you're doing the gallops as well. Now, all these years on, can you recall the meetings in their correct order? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was easy. Uh, what occurred, uh, remembering that, you know, like we, we had the city racing and the country racing, that was it, but what occurred was uh, Ian, uh, I... I now, that wasn't when he injured himself. He was on holidays. I was doing his, yeah, he's on holidays. Mm. So the Saturday meeting at Randwick was postponed due to rain. Mm. So they raced at Randwick on Monday. They postponed it till Monday. So mm. I went to Randwick on Monday and covered the meeting there, left Randwick, went straight to Wollongong. And then on Tuesday, as was the case uh, many times, they had Gosford races on in the afternoon and Gosford dogs were on in the night. So I did both those. Then on Wednesday, uh, you'd do Canterbury in the afternoon. Then I went through to Bulleye. And then on Thursday, this was the killer on the Thursday, I had a meeting at Wyong and had to get the DAPTO and there was a protest in the last at Wyong. Oh, I've got it. I just can't yeah. believe this. This is impossible. Mm. So I, I, I think I, I think it was a very quick protest and by the time I got to the car or whatever, it was just about over. So I had a, I think I rang the studio and said it was being dismissed or some darn thing. So I was in the car and through to Dapto, and then on Friday it was Richmond in the night, and then on Saturday it was uh, wherever the meeting was in the afternoon. I think the meeting in the afternoon was at Rose Hill, mm. and the meeting at the night was at Wentworth Park. Mm. And I think that totals about 11 meetings in the one week. It does, which is a world record. And I've got to say, Paul, I didn't get within cooey of it in my career. Well... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you've got to keep going with it. I tell you, there's, there's been a few things like that. But that that's you know, the, the other one, that, the other record that I definitely held. Mm. They were racing Twilights at Randwick, and they were racing uh, not an early start, but they were racing about 7.35 was the first at Wentworth Park. Mm. And the last in Sydney was five past seven. Good heavens. So I said to Billy, I said to Billy Cooper, I said, the starter. I don't care what happens, mm. you are the starter. I don't care if there's four out. <laughs> you just let them go. Let them go. In the last. <laughs> and anyway, he got the last off on time due to very heavy threats from me because Billy did, did tend to run a little bit late. Yeah. So anyways, uh, he turned around and he, he got on going. So I've just had everything in the ready, just picked up the bag and everything away. I went, ran past everybody down the escalators that you would know it. Uh, at Randwick, mm. and yelling out, move to left, move to left, here I come, <laughs> and jumped in the car to get to uh, to Wentworth Park. And here's mm. the amazing thing. Mm. I got every red light from Randwick to Wentworth Park. Oh, don't you always, yep. I never, ever forgot it. I got every red light, and I drove in. They were just going past the winning post, parading to the boxes when I drove in. I parked at the bottom of the stairs, ran up the stairs as they arrived at the boxes, screwed in my binocular case, which still had my binoculars sitting on it, and pushed a button down and said they're at the boxes for the first. <laughs> <laughs> unflappable. The unflappable Paul Ambrosoli. You've got, you got to be that, mate. <laughs> if you're not that, you're in terrible strife. <laughs> mate, just stand by for a moment there. We'll pause to clear a commitment on the podcast and back with Paul. We're going to talk about his long experience, his long tenure with the Hawkesbury Race Club after this. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life 
for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. My special guest is Paul Ambrosoli. You handle the transition to the horses whenever called upon and you had one very long association with the Hawkesbury Race Club. I think most people, Paul, will be surprised to learn that you were there as course caller for 15 years. I think it might have been longer than that. I don't know. Is it 15? I've, see, I never look at these things. I, I don't think it might have been 15 years. I, but it was either 15 or 21 of the two. Mm. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I was there for a long while, mate. It, uh, I don't, don't even ask me how it started. Uh, I don't know how it started. Uh, but that, that was what occurred. I do remember how it started, actually. Uh, yeah, that's how it occurred. And, you know, I was there for whatever it was, 15 or 20 years. Mm. Then the dash to Dapto. Yeah, well, that's what ended up. That's what ended up stopping the the, the course broadcast mm. because they were on a Thursday, and I had to get from here to Dapto. Now, I didn't have any difficulty until people suddenly found that living out in the west was uh, had its had its uh, advantages. And uh, as they moved out, so the coppers became more and more, mm. and I just simply couldn't get from Hawkesbury to Dapto and miss the coppers. You know, simple <laughs> as that, mate. I just. <laughs> I just couldn't do it, you know. So I, mean? so I, 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 I definitely hold the record from getting from Londonderry, where we we lived for forty years, from Londonderry to Dapto. Yeah. Uh, one rainy, drizzly, rainy night, I definitely mm. held the record because the lovely Welsh gentleman next door to us passed away, mm. and his adorable wife came trundling over. She's like, I don't think, I don't think my husband's very well. So we went down anyway. He had passed away, so oh, we had dear. to wait for the. You know, and she was a you know doddering, and we had to wait for the uh, the ambulance to come. So as soon as it arrived, we left. And I always remember I, I left at twenty nine minutes to seven, and the first race at Dapto was at seven forty, mm. and we arrived at Dapto, door shut in the car park, door shut and locked at exactly at exactly seven thirty. Fifty nine minutes down mm. the <laughs> from from London Derry to Dapto. They wouldn't even get from London Derry to happen in fifty nine minutes. No, 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 absolutely. But I make I make no no apologies for, for breaking all the all the rules along the way. But mate, when you're on the road for a long while in those days, not today, in those days, uh yeah, you've you you've certainly got to know how to handle yourself on the road. But mm. today it's an entirely different game. Many of your greyhound calls have become legendary, but you told me once that your best call ever was in a thoroughbred race at Randwick, and it sticks in your mind for a particular reason. You had a, an opinion or you'd made an assessment about the characteristics of a certain horse, and mm. you played that game in the call. Yeah, I, I did. He, the horse you will mention in a moment 
In greyhound parlances, there's uh, there's a word we call non-chasers, right? Mm. Now, I got myself in a couple of hot spots by using the terminology in horse racing. One in particular was at Rose Hill when a horse moved up with about 100 metres left to run and it decided that it wouldn't go past the leader. Mm. And over the line, I've said, gee, that horse, you know, I said, and such and such finished second. He just simply failed a chase. Mm. Well, I think we received, oh, we might have received 20 or 30 uh, phone calls, let mm. alone half a dozen letters to the management mm. complaining about me saying that the horse didn't chase. Mm. And I said, well, the horse didn't chase. Simple mm. as that. Mm. I said he just didn't want to win. So anyway, turned around. The next week, the trainer renominated seven-day backup. Got a hundred yards from home, the same horses moved up on the outside. Only this time it didn't decide to not chase, it decided to fight. <laughs> it's bitten the leg of a jockey on the other horse. Mm. And I said, There you go, you know. So I said, Now, anybody who wants to complain about it, that's what's happened. So, anyway, the hot race of which you speak was at Randwick, mm. and there was a horse in the race that I knew I had to be careful of. And I don't know whether it was. It, was, it had to be one of the big races, John, but I can't think what it was. Mm. Anyway, as I came up the rise, the race is in front, and I have got the the other horse in my right eye. He suddenly appeared, mm. and everybody has got up to say, here comes Manawapoi. <laughs> and Manawapoi has loomed up on the outside, destined to win the race, and I have not fallen for the three-card trick. I kept punching with the ones on the inside that were in front, and I've got a half an eye on Manawapoi coming, coming, coming. And yes, it was it was a it was a pretty good call. It was a pretty good call, and I got it right. Manawapoi, I think, ran second or third, beaten half ahead, mm-hmm. and uh, just when everybody thought he was going to win the race, and you know anybody would have called him the winner. But I, I hung out of it. And I kept with the rhythm of the race. And you know what the rhythm of the race is, what it means. You just keep with the rhythm and the rhyme of the race. And I managed to get it right. And I always maintain that that was the best race call of all time because mm. I could have got it so wrong. You know, you could really get your teeth around an exciting duel in a greyhound race. The 1997 National Derby final is still talked about. The clash between Comrade in Arms, Deep North and Roanoke. It was a beauty, and you were frothing at the mouth. Yeah, a few people, um, Mark uh, uh, Duclos, one in particular, has always said that was my greatest call. And I don't even remember it as such, you know. Like I, it was a, you know I remember the race, I remember the finish mm. and everything else. But I, you know, it, it sort of surprised me that that was the one that he plucked out, and he was one of a few people who did that. Mm. And I think it might have been... It may have been, John, that, you know, I get – you do get excited. If you don't get excited, you have plenty of strife. You know, my, mm. my listeners were my family of, uh, of punters who were, you know, they were, they were hooked onto my words and what I was saying, and I didn't mm. want to contrive anything. No. I hate contrivity in, in, in race broadcasters, and, you know, you've got to say this and you've got to say that. I can only talk about what I see through the 1050 lens. Mm. That's it. That's the that's the picture. That's the theatre that I want to take to the racetrack. Mm. And Comrade in Arms had come down the centre of the track, and as he went past and went to the lead, I clapped my hands. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I clapped my hands and Comrade in Arms, bang. <laughs> yeah. And 
I think that's what everybody that's what everybody got hung up with. You know, the fact mm. that I sort of clapped my hands as he went to the line. Mm. <laughs> well, if you think that was a graphic call, I got to say you were beside yourself when a little black and white bitch called Power oh. to Burn looked beaten, but came oh. again to win the Golden Easter Egg. You got off your chair that night. Oh, mate, I, 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 that, that was. That was something else. I mean, that was that was one of that you just couldn't help but get lost in the drama of the race. Uh, I mean, on the home turn, I feel as a big white and black doggy. You know, he's got muscle, he's got everything, and he's got this little black bitch in his eyes as he came to the turn. He's moved up and he's got her. You know, he's got her. He's running the lead, and she's just dropped down to another gear, mm. and she's just kept punching on the inside, and she's out sprinted him to the line down the straight. It was just, it was awe-inspiring. It really was. It was just awe-inspiring, and mm. she's been able to win the race. I mean, yeah, I got off my seat. I I used to sit down to call the greyhound races, uh, Sam doing the horses, but sit when I was doing the uh, the greyhounds, and I got off mm. my seat. It takes a bit to get me off my seat at the best of times. The yeah. race. <laughs> Another one of your favourites, worth doing, overcame a severe check in the straight one night, but still managed to win the derby. You love that dog. I thought he was fantastic. He, I thought he was fantastic. Uh, he uh, he he was a trier, and that's what I said about you know the positions of some racing animals to uh, to the others when the comparisons. When the chips were down, he was charging. When the chips were down with some of the others, they sort of looked around and said, "Geez, do I have to try this hard to win this?" You know, and he was charging. He was flying to the line. He 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 did a lot of things in races you wouldn't see. But we had a lot of champions, greyhounds, really champions. Like Jimmy Coleman had a dog called General Jeff, mm. and they he was just he would just run a record with ease. The Zoom Top would go around three times a week, and on the third time, run a track record. Yeah. Um, I, I, Miss Hilo, Miss Hilo, she was she was amazing. One night at Wentworth Park, we used to broadcast in the back straight at Wentworth Park, and I was looking down the back sides of the the, the dogs in this in a Sydney Cup, I think it was, mm. and she was running third on the inside, and there was no run on the rails. Now I know there was no run on the rails because I was looking straight down the back side of it. Mm. And she came off the top turn a length and a half in front, taking a rails run. Yeah. And I maintain to this day that she put a front feet to the mid to the to the rib section of the dog in front. Mm. And when she brought a hinds through, she put the other front feet into the into the lead of the other dog, mm. into, into the front of the other dog, and then pulled herself through because I know there was no gap there. And when I've looked at the run mm. side on on the TV, there's still no run there. Yeah, huh? it's amazing yeah. what they can do. Of all amazing. the great stayers you've called. I've always had the feeling you've got Travel Rev on top. Well, Travel Red, we're talking about doing things that you can't do. Travel Red was at an association cup or something like that many years ago at Harold Park. And remember that Harold Park was the best greyhound track in the world, mm. in the world. Mm. There's no, there was no better greyhound track than Harold Park. They ran 500-yard races. They started in the, in the back straight, one turn and then back home again. The 800-yard race was they started at the top of the straight, down the straight, one circuit of the course, and it was you know, it was a fabulous racetrack. Mm. Travel Rev was meeting possibly one of the best fields that ever lined up in, uh, I think it was the Association Cup. I got a dreadful memory for these things, mate. I really mm. have. Uh, and he lined up in the Association Cup, and they went past the 500 boxes in the back straight, mm. and he was giving the leader 11 lengths. Now, 
it was a race that there was sort of a tenth between eight dogs. There was just a tenth between. If you did something wrong, you couldn't win. He was running last. And he just extended and extended. He got to the home turn and just cut him down. And I thought, wow, I've just seen something that you just don't see in racing. You just mm-hmm. don't see it. Uh, you talk about Maccabi Divas and uh, all the other horses that give away big starts and what have you, or win the big races. That's most probably the best run in any big race of three of the three codes I've ever seen. I've just never, never ever forgot it mm. uh, because it, it couldn't happen, but it did. Mm. And the other, well, the others were were on their game. They, they weren't off their game. They were on their game anyway. But you see, mate, you see all these things. I mean, God, you can't you can't compare. Any of the any of the codes to what they were, you know, thirty or forty years ago. You just can't you can't compare rugby league to what it was thirty or forty years ago. They changed no. the football. It changed the whole game. Yeah, you haven't mentioned exactly. Roman Earl yet, and I know you thought the world of him. Yeah, Roman Earl. He was he was one of the fastest dogs from the boxes and straight down. He he was one of the quickest. General, I reckon if you put him down to our general, Jeff would most probably beat him comfortably, but. Uh, but Roman Earl was just a particularly fast dog. Mm. Zoom Top may have sent the, bench, sent the benchmark uh, for um, uh, for greyhound racing, but Roman Earl, I would say, set the, set the benchmark for sprinters. Mm. There was a lot of other better sprinters that came along, and as much as they won bigger races and everything else, but as I said, things changed. And uh, Roman Earl in his day, uh, he was the fastest dog. Out of the boxes to the winning post the first time, he was just so... He's just so blistering his speed. And you, those those runners are like horses. They leave you in awe of their ability to do things that nobody else can do or no, no other racing animal can do. And that's what makes them so special and makes them so watchable. Paul, um, another of your talents is the ability to lock in a sponsor. <laughs> I can't remember a time when you didn't have one or two uh, in tow and seven years after retirement, I still hear your Debortley Wines commercials running on Sky Racing Radio. Yes, I started with two sponsors, John. Uh, When I did my first football broadcast, I had two sponsors, a menswear store at uh, at Penrith and... um, a car dealer at Blacktown, and after I finished the the racing, that was the the football that was fine. I was doing racing, and the Mitchell and Townsend were the were the dealers, and they came back to me about oh I'd say ten years later, maybe be long ten years later, and wanted to start up again. So we did for a brief period there, but I've always had them. You know, you've got to realise, John. I don't think people understand. When I started broadcasting races and I was working for 2KA, mm. mate, to, I would get $10 to go to, say, Dapto Dogs, mm. put petrol in the car with the $10, go to Dapto Dogs and come back again. That was my, that was my <laughs> wages, the $10. Yeah, yeah, I had yeah. to put the petrol in the car. Yeah. So, mate, if you, you know, like, and then I moved and then transferred to 2KY and really and truly, we're, we're in a different zone to you and Craigie. You're in the horse racing zone, and that's a big selling zone. That's like being in the John Laws or the Alan Jones part of the part of the the, the, the presentation. You have a large advertising cost, a large advertising price, and you know coming out of breakfast or coming out of racing, that's what pays everybody's wages at the station. Well, I was working in the night time. 
you know, an advertising there was worth two bob and a cup of coffee because you had a <laughs> diminished audience to that which you had at the horse races. Uh, so, you know, I mean, if I had to live off what I earned at 2KY in those days, I'd be a permanent resident in the Sydney City Mission. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and like I had a few people say, why do you say that? Well, it's the truth, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's not. So consequently, you know, I, you know, I was – doing my own business with my advertising and I, I always worked on one one aspect of it and I think this is why I possibly succeeded there, John. I mm. always worked on the basis that I would never, ever advertise anything mm. that A, I hadn't tried and B, that I approved of and I thought was a good product. Yep. And I've lived by that for my entire life. Uh, I, I just don't, I, you know, like you, you mentioned De Bortley. Mm. I'll tell you how I started with De Bortley. My sister-in-law, a hundred years ago, gave me a glass of right wine. Mm. Oh, God, it was awful. It was just awful. I said, where did you get that from? She said, what? I said, what is He said, it's Dee Batoli. I said, it's De Bortoli. I said, yeah, God, it's an awful wine. Mm. So anyway, 20 years later, maybe even longer, I don't know, 20 years later, somebody's given me a glass of wine that was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it was really nice. And I... Yeah, you know, I, I take I I just don't swallow you know guzzle wine or something. And I said, "What's that?" He said, "It's the De Bortley Chardonnay." And I thought, "Wow, if that's De Bortley's improved that far from the Chardonnay that I tasted 25 years ago, mm. then you know I'll try a few others and get the that." So I did, and I thought, "Well, these are good wine. This is lovely." You know, I didn't even know there was a round. So I uh, I, I approached Kevin Scanlon from De Bortley. Mm. And uh, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a great union between us. He mm. said, "Oh, love it, you know, it's great stuff." And uh, I turned around and we started. And uh, he said, "Dean would think this is great." So the, the, the uh, connection between De Bortley and racing mm. started then. When Kevin Scanlon and I you know, got together, that, that's so. You any, see any of the De Bortley connections? That's where it started many, many years ago, mm. and it was it was excellent. It's been a very good relationship, and, a ve- and Kevin only passed away recently, oh, and yeah. uh, he was I missed him greatly because he was really, really good. Mm. But yeah, that's that's the sort of thing that happens. Like mm. the other one of the Premier Cabs. Now you'll know this gentleman for sure, Premier Cabs. It took me two years to start advertising Premier Cabs. And I've got to tell you this, when I was writing the Premier Cabs commercial, sometimes I had tears running down my eyes. I really thought they were good. Mm. <laughs> anyway, a gentleman go, grabbed hold of me uh, at the uh, Dapto Dogs for about two years when he, when he was coming back from overseas or whatever. And he'd grab hold of me and say, you've got to advertise my company, Premier Cabs. It's the best public company in Australia. I said, is it? He said, yes. He said, so for two years we'd be having coffee and a pie or something at Dapto Dogs, and I finally said, okay. I said, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I've got no idea how I'm going to fit you in. Mm. So uh, <laughs> I, Dapto, the Bortley were doing one half of Saturday, and I wanted somebody to do the other half. So I said, well, I'll get Premier to do the other half. And so I had to figure out how I was going to do it. And, you know, so finally you, you, you get yourself into a zone, and uh, the, the gentleman – the gentleman who was uh, responsible was uh, none other than one uh, uh, Kevin, oh, Kevin, Kevin, mm. Kevin Maloney from Sedgen Hostad, who yep. owns Sedgen Hostad. Mm. And Kevin was the Premier Cavs man. 
And then Peter Hire, his other director, was a rails bookie uh, in town. Mm. So, uh, you know, so obviously enough, we got together and uh, we, we, we wound up with Premier Cab. So they, they were with me for about, you know, for about 20 years or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So it's very good that I've had them for that long. You know, yeah. I, I can't tell the the, the the commercial about marriage was the one that the boss used to like. Mm. You know, first marriage, second marriage, and third marriage is hope over Hope over insanity or common sense or something like that. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> the golfer said, "Do you think you can get there with a five iron?" The caddy said, "Eventually." So if you're going out <laughs> celebrating after the game, don't yeah. forget the windy peak. Drive Cabernet Merlot and think of your tee shots when yeah. you're drinking, yeah. and use a designated driver. You know, there's a message in there somewhere along uh, the way. <laughs> good script, good script. Now, Paul, we're going to quicken the speed here, mate, because our you don't time have to quicken is the speed. We've got all afternoon. Go for it. <laughs> Another one of your legendary commercials, and I've got to say, I think this was my favourite, was the yeah. one you did live on Sky Racing TV for DeCosti Seafoods. <laughs> you'd, you'd run down out of the box between races, you'd grab hold of a dirty big snapper or jewfish, you'd cradle it in your arms and reel off a perfectly timed television commercial. You're an absolute freak. <laughs> I said to George, we're going to do some television. He said, are we? (laughs) I said, yes. (laughs) He said, oh, right, that sounds okay. Had no no idea. And then I thought, well, how am I going to do this? You know, but the the good part, everybody used to like it, but the the, the Dacosti special and I'd have the fish and I'd have to throw the fish up a little bit, then turn it around on the other side was the best bet of the night. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I know, it was a ripper. Now, Paul... (laughs) Many tributes have come your way from the greyhound industry over the years, but there are two that have touched you deeply. First, your induction into the Hall of Fame, and secondly, the renaming of the race that was formerly known as the Golden Easter Egg Consolation. In 2009, it became the Ambrosoli in recognition of your incredible service to the industry. Humbling. It was, uh, it was, John. Um, I mean, uh, you know, like when the Easter egg was first mooted, um, the president who uh, made it work was Bill Baker, and he wanted no sponsors. And I said, "Oh, just let me see if I can sell this." Will you? I said, because I said I've got an idea for for greyhounds, you know, and this could be, you know, very good because I was working on something with Dapto dogs also. Yeah. And so I became very close to it. And people, it's, it was a little bit like um, uh, the Everest. People said it can't work. And the Everest, I just, I couldn't believe when people said it can't work. Where, you know, how are you going to have a $10 million race or something like this? Mm. Well, I was absolutely flawed because you only had to find, I only had to find a, a dozen punters with a, with a million dollars or something, and there's a million, there's a more than a few, more than a dozen of those around, mm. and the, the race works, and then it'll gallop on from there. Well, this was the same with the Easter egg, and I said, if you want a sponsor, well, fine, you know. So I didn't chase the sponsors, and he he was appreciative of my thoughts that the race would work because he didn't think he, he was really worried about it. I said, mm. it's just got to work. You it can't fail. Mm. Uh, there's some things that can fail. There's an ounce of doubt that they can fail. This can't fail. 
and it you know and it took off and took off as it should have been it should have been you know it should have been hailed as a, as a great race uh, I was a Derby man. The NCA Derby was the best age classic anywhere in Australia or anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere or possibly the world. Mm. And then you've got the Golden Easter Egg, which serves another another quarter of, uh, the, the, uh, of the, the racing industry, and it had to work. So it did. And then, yes, they changed it and called it the Ambrosoli. And I've got to tell you, that was something that, of which I was very, very appreciative from the Greyhound Breeders, Hunters and Trainers Association. It did really touch me. It really did touch me that, that, that they, they named it that. I, as long as they do it, that's fine. If they think they've got to do something else with it, that's fine because I'm proud of what they uh, did for me in the time that they've done it for me. You know, race calling is something you've got to be doing continuously or you'll soon get rusty. Yeah. You know what? I'm pretty certain... We could sit you down in the box at Wentworth Park next Saturday night. No, Give no, you time no, to no. run your eye over the rug colours and you'd call it as though you'd never been away. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I called my first dog race at Lithgow and that came about for the fact that when I was playing cards with friends, one of the friends was Cliffy Clare mm. and Cliffy knew uh, Ray Conroy and I nagged him to take me over to Ray Conroy and introduce me. I did, and Ray said, I'll send you to Reg Cowden at Lithgow, mm. and he can give you a couple of races. And I went to Lithgow, and the first race I called had a dog called Farrah Flash, which went on to be an absolute top liner at Harold Park in the, in the future from when I called. Mm. And that was the first race that I called at Lithgow. Mm. So the president called me recently because Lithgow had been closed down for a couple of years because the, uh, the, the authorities said it needed work done to it. They'd finished the work and they are going to have a return meeting. So they invited me up, he said, to call a race. I said, oh, mate, I'm not real keen on calling a race. And he said, no, you'll be right. I said, well, I, you know, I said, you've got to realise people think race calling's okay, but, you know, your breathing's got to be right and your timing's got to be right. And of the three codes, Greyhounds, I, I used to say it was the, they were the hardest to call. I think they might have been slightly very, it should have been, they are the trickiest to call. Mm. If they're not the hardest, they are the trickiest of the three codes to call. I've done the three of them. Uh, and I said, you know, like I said, mate, I, I really don't want to do a race. He said, just do the one for me. I said, right here. So I went up. I said, the only reason I'm doing this, and I said to the, the audience, I said, the only reason I'm doing this race is because this is where I called my very first Greyhound race. Mm, sentiment. That's right. And I said, that's the only reason I'm doing it for the, for the boss today. So I did the race. And, yeah, I, I didn't want – I honestly, after the race, I didn't want to do another one. I, I was perfectly happy doing that one. I said, I'm perfectly happy doing that. But I said, yeah. I'm not doing any more. How did and it go, though? The, you haven't mentioned. How did it go? Well, the crowd gave the crowd that was in attendance gave me a rousing round of applause, and so they should. And I was, so, I, 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 mate, I'm not joking. I, I felt felt like bursting out of tears. I was, <laughs> it really shocked me. It really, I'm God's honour. It really shocked me. I yeah. was amazed because I didn't expect anything like it. I just got through the race and yeah. said, "Thank God for that," you know. But you're not getting any more. Yeah, <laughs> and they all gave me a round of applause. So it was really, yeah, it was very, very nice. Was and very Paul, that was how long after retirement did this occur? Well, it occurred about twelve months ago. Right. Okay. So, so that was six years into yeah. retirement. That's yeah. precisely what I just said in the previous question. <laughs> no, you, you can't. But if I got, if I sat down on Wentworth Park to call the race, I suppose you might say you could muddle your way through it and everything. But you've got to realise that 
John, you more than anybody else, because you do three the the, the couple of codes of the, the TV and the radio. You must realise that when you sit down to do a race and broadcast the race, you might think you've done a, a, a reasonable job, but you've got to do a job that you know the people listening to you have appreciated. You know that you have pleased them because, mate, I first wanted to become a broadcaster because I wanted to give the people a service at home that I would expect if I was sitting at home. And that was my whole ambition. I never had a change in that ambition from day one. That was my ambition, to give them at home what I wouldn't need if I was at home, listening to a race. So as a consequence, if I got up there and muddled my way through, that's not good enough for me. It's got to be the you know it's got to be the professional way that I want to do it, and uh, after five or six years, mate, you as I said, your breathing and your timing, it uh, it's not what it used to be. Mister Greyhound Racing, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Thanks for your time, and most importantly, thanks for the memories. Thank you, John. Thank you for uh, remembering me. Simple as that. Along the way, you've got a program here that's done. A few hundred, uh, a few hundred uh, podcasts on the way. I hope that uh, I hope the people haven't found it boring or anything of that nature. I hope we've covered a bit of racing, which makes them appreciate where everything comes from. Paul Ambrosoli, boring is one thing you will never be. Thank you. That's a that's a very nice compliment, I must say. Thank you very much. The team at Inglis are describing this year's Ready to Race catalogue as the best ever assembled. The sale is scheduled for Tuesday, October the 12th and will feature 185 two-year-olds by some of Australia's most in-demand stallions and some exciting new sires. Most importantly, these youngsters have been prepared by some of the most talented breeze-up experts in Australia and New Zealand. The English Ready to Race sale leads the way in the field of two-year-old auctions with more than 400 individual winning graduates since 2015 accumulating almost $60 million in prize money. This year's entries will breeze up in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland and New Zealand. High quality videos of each and every workout will be available on the English website within 48 hours of the gallop. At your leisure, you'll have the opportunity to assess tractability, action, attitude and potential ability. To order your hard copy of the Ready to Race catalogue, email catalogue at inglis.com.au or speak to one of the Inglis Bloodstock team on 9399 7999.